Thank, thank you, guys. One more hand for them. They work really hard on this. They put a lot of work into this. And even, even though sometimes they miss the, the key after the sweep, you know, it's all good. They work hard, and I appreciate them. I appreciate that amount of dedication. Uh, my Thanksgiving came early this year because I was taking a nap at 1.30 in the afternoon on Thursday. So it came a week early for me. And if you know me, you know 1.30 in the afternoon on Thursday, I'm either in class or I'm skipping class because I need a nap. And so I was, taking a, I was taking a good nap, too. And I got a text from, from Dave, and it was the best text I've ever received from Dave. It was saying, hey, Megan's not feeling too well. She's not sure she's going to be able to lead us this Sunday. How would you like to do it? This was Thursday, this Thursday at 1.30 in the afternoon. I was taking a nap. I woke up to this text, and I said, sure, let's do it. And then Saturday came around, and I thought, you know, maybe I should have started this earlier. So I'm, I'm trying to set your expectations kind of low because usually I like to put a lot more time than I got the chance to put into this one. But I sat down yesterday to, to work on this, and I, and I set aside pretty much the entire day to work on this. And God really started working on me through these verses that we're going to talk about today. Um, and so I hope I'm able to convey some of that today. I hope that I'm able to, to teach you all some of the things that I've learned uh, while studying this. So I'm not, I'm not above y'all. I'm still, learning. I'm still learning all this stuff too. I'm just now figuring it out. Um, so, up until earlier this year, I believe, I had a dog. This is my dog. She's tiny. I don't know if you can, this is a terrible picture. It's not the best picture. It's like the only picture I had on my phone. But she, she, was, she was about this big. I say she was because she, she died this year. She was about 13 years old when she died, which for a little dog like that, she was tiny though. She was about this big. She looked like a little deer. She had these long stilt-like legs. She howled when she got lonely. She was the best dog ever. And uh, she was, she, she, she was okay with me. Like she thought I was cool or whatever, but my mom, now that was her person. She loved my mom. My mom would go, would like leave for the day and I would be at home and the dog would be like total, uh, acting like totally depressed like, I'm totally alone. And I'd be like, I'm right here. And she's like, that's what I said, totally alone. And my mom would come home, and she would freak out. This dog would freak out. One time, my mom had to leave town for a couple weeks. She was gone for a couple weeks. So you can imagine the trauma that this dog had to go through during those couple weeks. So this dog was suffering for weeks without my mother at home. And then my mother finally came home. And, of course, I had to grab her so that she wouldn't run out the door because somehow or another she knew that it was my mother at the door instead of just anyone else. She, she almost ran out the door, so I grabbed her. I was holding her. My mom comes in, hands full of bags and stuff from being gone for a couple weeks, and so she goes, she's going to set him down in the kitchen, talking to the dog, trying to get her to calm down or whatever, but the dog's freaking out in my arms, just flailing all about, and in a brilliant moment of misplaced faith, my dog decided, if I leap out to my mother, she will catch me. Surely she will drop everything else she's holding. And surely, furthermore, she will notice that I leap. And none of those things happened. This dog leaped out of my arms. I was about as tall as I am now at the time. This was a couple of years ago. This dog leapt over my shoulder behind me towards my mother. And we were in the kitchen. And no one caught this dog. <laughs> this dog went and slammed on the floor of the kitchen. And it was terrifying to all. We were, we were so freaked out by this, but she got up. She was fine. She just kept wagging her tail. She had a stub tail. It was great. She just wagged her whole butt. 
It was great. We were so scared. We thought this dog was going to die, and it didn't. But this dog was on a mission to get back to my mom, and she didn't care what she had to go through to get there. She was a dog on a mission. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Not a dog on a mission, but Jesus on a mission. See that tie-in? That's a good tie-in right there. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be starting in Matthew chapter 9. The next week, uh, I'm going to pick us back up again in Matthew chapter 9. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. Uh, and we're going to take this, usually what I kind of like to do is read through all the verses and then pick it different sections at a time. Um, in order to try to get through this um, in, in as little of, of a, in as less of a confusing way as possible, there's no good way to say that sentence. Uh, I'm going to just go through it, go at it by section. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 8. So if you got it, uh, follow along with me. And it's on the screen. And getting into a boat... Jesus crossed over and came to Capernaum, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes, and Pharise- some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blasphemy. But Jesus, know- knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is a really cool, I'm upset by this, because I could go on for like an hour on just this section. So really what you're getting today is three micro-sermons. So how exciting. You should be very excited. I don't think you are. Thanks for that support with food in your mouth. Really encouraging. So Jesus, a little bit of context in case you weren't here last Sunday and the Sunday before that. Jesus, has, Jesus started here, right, over in the Capernaum area. And the people, he, he decided he wasn't, he wasn't really loving the crowd, so he got in the boat. He was going to sail across the sea, Sea of Galilee, and go to the other side of the sea. So he did. And, and in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, there's this terrible storm. The disciples think they're all going to die. Jesus is asleep. They wake him up. They're like, we're all going to die. Jesus said, no, we're not. He calms the storm, and the disciples get off the boat on the other side of the Sea of, Gal- of Galilee, probably thinking, I hope I never get on another boat again. They go, they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They heal some people. They, you know, kick out some demons, all this kind of stuff. And the people there are so overwhelmingly grateful that they beg Jesus to leave. And so Jesus just kind of come on, guys, let's get back on the boat. And the disciples were probably thrilled about that, I'm sure. Go right back across the sea. And so here they are. They're back in Capernaum. And when they get there, they're like fresh off the boat. And these, and these guys walk up to him. I guess one of them isn't walking. He has to be carried on a bed. This is how paralyzed this guy is. They can't even help him get to Jesus. He's got to be carried on a bed. The other Gospels describe what is probably the same story about these guys essentially having to sneak this guy into the room where Jesus was at the time. And Jesus looks at this guy, and he does something really, really crazy. He does something really, really weird. He tells him his sins are forgiven. Because that is clearly not the main issue here, right? Clearly the main issue is this guy's paralyzed. Aren't we supposed to meet the physical need before we try to, you know bring about repentance? What, why is he forgiving this guy's sins first? Well, a few weeks ago, or not a few weeks ago, probably a couple semesters ago now, we were talking about apologetics, and one of the things that we talked about was that there are a lot of people, and Danny mentioned this in the sermon today too, his sermon, the main service, 
that Jesus never really claimed to be God. And so why are we calling Jesus God? He never even claimed to be God. And this is exactly the kind of place where Jesus is claiming to be God. Who can forgive someone for something that they've done? If I steal from Chris, can Robert forgive me for stealing from Chris? Does that make sense? I guess he can say it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. He can say it, but it's not real forgiveness. Chris has to forgive me. If this man is a sinner, who can forgive that sin but God? It's not the same thing as, as a Pharisee or a priest saying your sins are forgiven. He's saying, I forgive your sins myself. He is claiming to be God here. That's amazing stuff. He has this incredible authority of God. And what, is, what does he do with it? He could make himself two feet taller and absolutely dominate the Israel NBA. But he doesn't do that. The first thing he does with it in this story is he forgives sin. But this story would only be half as fun if it ended there, because Jesus hasn't roasted the Pharisees yet. In this case, it's the scribes. They're all gossiping out how Jesus is blaspheming because he's making such, an author- such a claim to the authority of God. And, and by the way, they're totally correct if Jesus is lying about who he is. Right? If I came up here and I did a magic trick, I did a like, card trick, and I was like, this is a miracle because I'm literally God, we would not respond well to that because if you've known me for more than a day or two, you know I am definitely not God. I am definitely almost nothing like God. And so this would be a serious problem if Jesus were lying. And the, and the Pharisees aren't stupid. The scribes here aren't stupid. They're very smart people. The problem is they're looking so close that they're missing the point. So Jesus is painting this beautiful painting, and they're looking at the palette that he's holding in his hand, and they're saying, I don't know what I think about that shade of blue. You know, maybe it isn't even blue at all. And Jesus is creating this beautiful artwork, and they're missing it because they're focused on the palette so closely. And before we call the Pharisees stupid for this massive oversight in their theology— Don't we do the same exact thing with the church sometimes? Hasn't there been a time in my life whenever I've seen the way the church has behaved or the type of music at a certain church or the way a certain person has preached or something like that, and it makes me want to throw the whole thing out? Sometimes Christians are mean people too. Sometimes Christians aren't perfect people. (gasps) And whenever whenever we see that, sometimes our temptation is to throw the whole thing out. I think we do this. And if you you haven't been frustrated by the church before, it's going to happen because fundamentally the church is a family, and fundamentally families are are designed to be messy and and argue and fight because it's different people that, that, that love each other because of a connection they have, but maybe they don't have a whole lot in common otherwise. So if you haven't experienced this frustration with the church in your life yet, I want to encourage you whenever you do see it, don't look so close at your criticisms of the church that you forget about the importance of it altogether. We have an equip group going on right now called Why Bother with the Church? And I hope next semester some of you that aren't in this equip group will take advantage of this equip group. I hope that they're talking about some things like this. I'm not in charge of it, but I hope that they are talking about some things like this. The church is super-duper important. Why bother with the church? Because it's everything. And then Jesus caps off the story with the coolest response, the coolest mic drop moment ever. If you guys didn't know, Jesus is like super duper sassy. 
He's a super sassy guy, and it's absolutely awesome to see. So in verse 5, look again. Why do you think evil in your hearts? For is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Boom, roasted. I say. Because there's, there's two options with this rhetorical question that Jesus is asking. The first is that forgiving sins is easier, in which case now he's just done the more difficult of the two things. Because I suppose it's easier to say, you know, your sins are forgiven. So if it's easier to say your fr- sins are forgiven, he's just done the more difficult thing by healing a man of paralysis. And if forgiving is more difficult which the scribes would probably say, it's, it's, it's more difficult because it's impossible for a man to forgive sins, then isn't it also impossible for a man to heal another of paralysis by doing nothing but saying words to him, by nothing but telling him to get up? Anyone could have seen that this guy was unhappy because of his paralysis. But Jesus saw a whole lot deeper. He didn't just want to satisfy the physical need. He didn't just want to do a miracle. That wasn't his mission. His mission was to forgive sin. And the story of this paralyzed person is a lot like our own story. It's a lot like my story. I was pretty useless. I was stuck. I was paralyzed, one could say, in sin. And Jesus looked at me, and he fixed me. He fixed me not by, not by giving me some sort of awesome talent, necessarily, but, but by forgiving me and bringing me into fellowship with him. And then through that, he said, get up and go. And I couldn't get up and go before, but now I can. We are helpless before the God of the universe, but he comes down to our level, forgives us of our sins because of nothing but our faith. And then he transforms us. He tells us to, to get up and go. And he, even if we couldn't before now, We can because we are transformed. So what's the greater miracle in this story? What is Jesus' mission? To heal a man of paralysis or to heal a broken sinner? To forgive an infinite crime that's been committed or to make a guy that couldn't walk before able to walk? Like, this is really cool. Healing paralysis is really cool stuff. Don't get me wrong. But it doesn't make me go, wow, nearly as much as what God's done in my life. And I think that's Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission isn't to heal people. It's not to do these miracles necessarily. It's to forgive sin and transform the world. Jesus' mission is to change the world. But the story goes on. I could go on about this. I could go on about these verses, but I'm not going to do that to you. We're going to go on to verse 9, and I can do it myself. Caleb already got me. (laughs) Um, So read along with me. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus sat at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with Jesus and and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the, to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So finally, the guy that's writing all of this gets introduced to the story. This is the Matthew that wrote the Gospel of Matthew, finally, and he's really doing himself no favors because how disappointing he's a tax collector. You know who the tax collectors are. They're those Jewish people that are betraying their own people by working with the Romans, by working for the Romans. They're on Caesar's payroll. They don't like that. A lot of them stole from their fellow Jewish people by artificially jacking up tax rates and pocketing the difference. Furthermore, they would break the traditions of their people, like to name the least, Sabbath. They worked on Sabbath in the name of the Roman Empire sometimes. This is big stuff. These tax collectors do not have the largest fan clubs. Jesus goes to one of the tax collectors. He calls him to be one of his closest disciples, and he sits down with more. The Pharisees don't like that. Pharisees come along and start questioning the disciples. Like, why is he sitting with tax collectors and sinners? So we're not just talking about sinners flat out, right? Because that would be everyone. We're talking about what the Pharisees deem as sinners, right? Some translations of the Bible, I think NIV does this. It puts sinners in quotes here. Like Matthew's kind of making fun of the Pharisees a little bit. What's he doing sitting with sinners? And Jesus hears them, and he lays out this absolutely brilliant quote that it's not the healthy that need a physician, that need a doctor, but it's the sick. That's t-shirtable. That'll go on a t-shirt any day of the week. That's some good stuff. But it's also really deep. It's not the healthy that need a physician, but the sick. Why would he go to the Pharisees, the ones that deem themselves healthy in this situation? Why would he go to the Pharisees? They don't need him, remember? They have no interest in what Jesus has to offer. They only have interest in criticizing. Their faith is shallow. Their faith is ceremonial. Their faith isn't personal. It's not sincere. These tax collectors and these sinners are sitting at a table eating with the Messiah, eating with the Christ. They're in personal relationship. That's personal. The Pharisees are standing over here. The Pharisees are standing over here looking at it and saying, I don't, I don't need that. Why would Jesus go to them? So there's two sides to this for us. First of all, if you feel too sick, if you feel too nasty, if you feel too gross to sit and eat with Jesus Christ, the Savior of humanity, think again, it's what he does in his spare time. Jesus specializes in finding the most broken people, the most looked down on people, the most marginalized people, the most damaged people in our society, and running after them headlong calling them. And there's another side of it, too. If you, feel, if you feel like you're healthy, maybe you feel like you don't need a doctor. Maybe you feel like you don't need Christ as much. And I don't think it's intentional. I think it's really easy to accidentally find ourselves standing right outside the house with the Pharisees. These Pharisees aren't stupid. In a lot of ways, they're just like us a lot of the time. And this is the one that I struggle with most. And I've talked about this a lot. I write these sermons. I help lead these discussions. And then I come here and I talk to you guys, and sometimes you guys put me right back in my place by reminding me of what it's all really about. 
It's so easy to forget that our faith is not centered on this building. It's not centered on these people. It's centered on Christ. Everything else is just part of the life. But the story isn't over yet. It's not over with him saying that. You know it because how? How do we know the story's not over? He hasn't roasted the Pharisees yet. That's still coming. He tells them to go and learn what I desire mercy, not sacrifice, means. What is Jesus quoting? He's quoting something. Does anybody know what he's quoting? You get like a gold star if you know what he's quoting. Hosea 6.6, gold star. That's incredible. Hosea is one of those books that like most of us haven't read, right? How many of you guys have done like an in-depth study of Hosea? I see some hesitant hands, so maybe some not authoritative hands. No, Hosea, you know, it's like, it's kind of confusing, right? It's buried in a lot of context. Who wants to, like, take a lot of time? But here's Hosea 6. This is what Jesus is quoting. So what's happening is Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms of, of the nation of Israel, are, are fighting with each other, and more, more importantly, they're fighting against God. They've been apart from God for a really long time, and God doesn't like that. And so he's trying through the through the prophet Hosea, to call his people back to him. And they're starting to come to this understanding that maybe something's wrong. And so this is what, this is what the Lord says to Israel and Judah. He says, what should I do with you, Israel? What should I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have rebuked them by the prophets. I have slain them with my words, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. This is why Hosea and stuff are kind of sometimes worth studying a lot, because they're really pretty like this. So God is saying here, and Jesus is echoing, it's not about your sacrifices, it's not about your burnt offerings. I want you to love me. He doesn't care about the sin. He doesn't care about the rituals. He doesn't care about the traditions. He cares about the people. This is what God is saying to his people hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus comes. And Jesus comes and he just says the same thing. All he's doing is saying the same thing that these Pharisees should be so intimately familiar with. These Pharisees should know it better than anyone. And Jesus is like, Hosea, look it up. I'm not saying anything that contradicts anything that you're studying. They're so, they're so determined to criticize Jesus and to tear him down, they're not paying attention that he is not changing their scripture. He's fulfilling it. So this tells, us, this tells us more about what Jesus' mission is, but that's not all. It also tells us that the mission of Jesus isn't one that's changed. You read, the, you read the law, you read the first five books, you read the prophets, you read the entire Old Testament. Jesus comes as a fulfillment of those things, not, not, like dis, not a garbage disposal, right? He's not saying, okay, this didn't work, so we're going to get rid of it, and now here I am, now we're going to do something new. Jesus is saying, no, I'm doing the same thing. I'm telling you the same thing that God has been telling you. And so he's not not changing the story at all. He's just continuing it. 
And what's beautiful about this is that the story still isn't over. By participating in discipleship in Christ, we are participating in something that started back with Abraham, that started back with creation, went all the way through the Exodus, goes all the way through the prophets, the burning bush, King David, Isaiah, Elijah in a cave. Are you sensing a pattern? Can you hear the score building? This is the greatest story ever, and you are one of the main characters in it. And it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed since day one, since day one. God just wants to love us. He wants a relationship with us. This is what he's always wanted. And despite our sin, despite our sin, God knew how to be with us anyway, and he made it happen through Christ, and here we are. So what is Jesus' mission? To forgive sinners like me. Is that mission new? No. Does that mission look a little different than it used to? It seems so, right? There's traditions and stuff that we read about in the Old Testament we don't do anymore. We've talked about this a little bit before, but I want to continue talking about it because luckily the last four verses are dedicated to this as well. So in verse 14, 914, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Pretty simple question, yeah? I'm noticing a difference here, but we're all supposed to be worshiping the same God. Why? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will mourn. Then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is, the, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins so, so that both are preserved. What? There's a lot of context there that we don't have anymore, is it? When was the last time you had a wineskin-related conversation with a friend of yours? Franklin, put your hand down. I don't want to hear it, man. You had your moment in the spotlight. <laughs> this is, there's a lot here, but I want you to stay with me because this gets really cool really fast. So stay with me. It hasn't aged well, but that's okay. We're going to pick it apart a little bit. Now, Jesus, first of all, I want to talk about the type of fasting that they're talking about here. It isn't the same type of fasting that I was talking about a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. That type of fasting is something that we can still do. It's something that we, we still do a lot. It's the idea of putting something aside, sometimes food, I submit sometimes other things, and instead focusing that time on prioritizing God above everything else, right? So it's this idea of I'm going to take a week where I'm not going to eat certain things, or maybe I won't be on my phone, or maybe I won't use any technology at all, and I'm going to focus on God with that time instead. This is the kind of idea of fasting that we still do, but that's not really what they're talking about here. The type of fasting Jesus is referring to here that he's being asked about is this ritualistic, very traditional, very ceremonial type of fasting. So people would fast to mourn or to repent or to try to invoke God to action in something. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. This is what I'm talking about. You guys know the story of Jonah, yeah? Because you've seen the VeggieTales movie, maybe. Do you guys still watch it? Is VeggieTales, like, still a thing that circulated? Okay. I feel like I was kind of on the tail end of it, so I don't really know. 
The story of Jonah, we're going to go over it. We're going to talk about the whole book of Jonah uh, next semester. It's going to be really fun. But a really cool part of that story is Jonah goes to Nineveh against his best wishes. And, and he tells the people of Nineveh, you know, God's going to destroy you. You got whatever. And, and then God's going to destroy you. He's going to send a big storm. It's going to kill you all. And the king of Nineveh hears this. He's not a fan of the idea of everyone dying. And so he institutes a fast over the whole region. He says, everyone's going to fast. Because we want to change God's mind. We want God to not do this to us. And so he does this as, as, a, as a symbol of repentance and also as, as a way of trying to invoke God to action or inaction. And it works. God pushes the storm back the other way. He relents of the storm. It's a really cool story, but this is the type of fasting that we're talking about. And so the first thing that Jesus says is about the bridegroom being taken. I don't know exactly what the tradition is. If there's, one, if, if there's a tradition that Jesus is specifically talking about here, I don't know what it is. But it's clearly, I think most of us recognize this is a reference to Christ's death, yeah? This is a reference to Christ being taken away during his death before his resurrection, right? This is the time that his people will mourn. But more importantly than that, he's saying the bridegroom is here right now. So if you want to fast to, to get closer to God, you want to fast to get right with God, that's a really weird thing to do whenever Christ is standing right next to you. Whenever God is standing right next to you, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say, I need to be fasting so that God will see my... Just, it's, he's right there. So Jesus is saying that, that this tradition, he's changing it. Because this tradition was a way of, of, of walking up the stairs to communicate with God. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm your new staircase. I'm the stairway to heaven. That's not in my notes. That one's for free. So you guys don't need, you don't need a fast. I'm right here. You don't need to do this ritualistic fasting. I'm right here. And then he starts talking about cloth and wineskins. I think this is where it gets really cool. So he just said, you do this ritual. The reason you do this ritual is because I, I wasn't here, but now I am. And now Jesus says, look, when you're fixing clothes, you don't fix them with old cloth, right? You don't fix them with bad cloth. You don't fix them, furthermore, you don't fix them with cloth that's so new that it still hasn't shrunk yet. Because then it's going to tear up the, the clothes even worse than they started. You don't fix them with old or messed up or, or, or imperfect cloth. Cloth has to be ready. And when you're making brand new wine, you don't put it in an old container. You put it in a new one. Because otherwise, the old container is going to mess up the new wine, right? Obviously. You guys are wine experts, right? The police are waiting outside. So the more of you confess... What Jesus is saying here is that I'm doing something new. The mission hasn't changed, but I'm doing something that's, that's definitely new. And I'm not going to put it in an old container. I'm not going to wrap it up in old rituals. It doesn't need to be contained by these old ceremonies. The covenant between us and God has changed. Everything has changed because of Christ. Why don't we sacrifice animals anymore? Why don't we wear certain garments anymore? Why don't we need the temple in Jerusalem anymore? It's because this covenant has changed. It's because whenever Jesus Christ died on that cross 
and the sin of the world was poured onto him. The universe shifted. Everything changed. Everything moved. Everything changed. God's position in relation to us changed. Everything is different now. This is a new covenant. The mission is still the same, to save the faithful, to save us, to save the church. That is still the mission. It hasn't changed, but the covenant has changed because now we are so much closer to God, so much more intimately close to God. We don't need these rituals anymore. Do you see how these rituals are shallow? These rituals are false whenever we are confronted with Christ. I don't know how often it crosses our minds that whenever, this is something I wanted to say last time, but I didn't, have, I didn't really have the time. But has it crossed, how often does it cross our minds that whenever we pray, our voices are going straight to God? And our hearts are going straight to God. We have that direct communication with God, and it's because of Christ that we have that. We are unseparated from God, and so these rituals and these ceremonies that were necessary before to bridge the gap are no longer necessary. That's what Jesus is saying. I think this is really profound. I think sometimes we put ourselves in these rituals, in these ceremonies. We do things, we jump through hoops to try to bridge the gap between us and God. And I think that's really scary. I think that's really dangerous because all we need is Christ. The more things we put between us and God that we've got to build a bridge over, the smaller Christ gets. Matthew is a really interesting book because it's not very literary. It's really like task-related. He's like, I'm going I'm to tell them all the important stuff. It's a highlight reel kind of of Jesus' ministry. And so it's really easy to get distracted by, wow, look how cool. He heals a blind man. Ah, oh, he casts out demons. It's really easy to get distracted. And I don't, I don't want to take attention totally off those things because they're really cool. And maybe they help you stay awake on a Sunday morning a little bit. But don't get distracted from what Jesus' mission is in these stories. Because then what you realize is Jesus' mission in these stories is no different than Jesus' mission now. This story is still happening. You're living in it. Let's not talk about let's not let's not talk about this like it's some sort of detached concept from our lives. Let's talk about it like it's something that's still going on. Like it's this awesome narrative, it's this awesome story about a God that loves people so much that he would put his son through all this for us. And let's let it change our lives. Let's let it transform us. Let's let it turn us from paralyzed people into people that can go. We got some questions at your table. Talk about whatever's on your heart. I hope that something's come up to you. Something's come to your mind. Maybe something's on your heart. Let's talk about it. Let me pray for us real fast, and then we'll break out into discussion. Dear Lord, thank you for the breath in my lungs to speak. Thank you for my hands to write. Thank you for my mind to think and my heart to feel. God, I pray that you work on me and that you work on these people, the leaders and the students in this room. Be with them throughout these weeks. Be with their families throughout Thanksgiving, God. 
bring us all closer to you and, and, and revive this story, this great story in our minds, in our hearts. And bring us into this story. God, I love you so much. Be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.